At the conference, there's a lunch break. We go stand outside, and uh, I saw some guys that I hadn't seen for years that were in my uh, connect group that I started when I was in high school. So when I was about 16, 17 years old, um, I really just wanted to share my faith with people and help disciple some of my friends at school. And so I started this connect group that I ended up running for about five years. And Kieron, again, sitting here today, he's just back from Angola, Zambia. I think he was close to the Congo at one point, right at the source of the Zambezi. He's been traveling Africa with his family, uh, with a caravan all the way through Namibia, right up to the most remote places. Um, those kinds of places where they tell you you're not allowed in with one 4x4 only. They won't allow you access unless you're two 4x4s. This is where his family has been traveling around, just spreading the gospel and sharing with people that are very much unreached. Can we just give Kieran a big round of applause? Come on. So amazing. But uh, so Kieran was, was one of the guys in that group that I had, that connect group. And so I saw two of these guys that was in this connect group. And so I went over to them. We were standing in the queue um, to, to buy some burgers. This is where I got sunburnt, right? So this is more hashtag white people problems, is when uh, you stand for like five minutes in the sun talking to somebody and you need to go to hospital afterwards um, because you're so sunburnt. And so anyway, so I see these two friends and uh, I go over to them and I greet them. And um, they're both uh, leading uh, in church in different areas. Uh, they're very successful in business. Um, the, the one guy specifically, uh, his name is Sean, his wife is full-time staff at uh, Hillsong and it does a lot of the administrative work and they're just uh, some great people. And, and, and so I go up to them, haven't seen them for years, and the way he greets me is he goes, Adrian, the guy who gave me my first ever Bible and gives me this big hug, and I think to myself, did I do that? I can't remember. I'm like, yes, the Bible. I remember, I don't know the Bible. Did I give you a Bible? Like, I couldn't even remember it. And so we end up standing there and chatting to them, and, um, and so he just starts telling me his story, and obviously he was in my, uh, in my, uh, my connect group, and so um, he's updating me on his life and how he got married and how they've been involved in church and how they moved to Cape Town, and, and God has been using them down there at Hillsong Church and, and all the rest. Um, but he starts telling me about, because um, he tells me about the Bible, and so he says that he was raised very religiously um, and going to church. Um, his mom was Catholic. I think his dad was Anglican, so he would go to the Catholic church, but he never had a personal faith in Jesus. And I remember when he used to come to, he would come with one of the other people that was in our connect group. And I remember he would come, but he would always be very reserved and he didn't have a Bible and the rest of us kind of had Bibles. So um, this is before smartphones. So you couldn't just like open an app or download an app real quick, right? And so I had completely forgotten this, but what I had done is after he had been there um, apparently about two times, I went and bought him a Bible and I wrote him a whole note on the inside um, that I have forgotten about. And then when he arrived, I said, hey man, I got this for you and gave that to him. And it was a couple of weeks later that as a, a whole connect group, we went and visited a church service and that night he gave his life to Jesus. And uh, I, I, can, I can remember um, we went to a little pizza place nearby there and I remember him going from being so reserved um, and, and so kind of just, I'm sussing this whole thing out, I'm just checking it all out, to not being able to ask enough questions in the amount of time that we had at that pizza spot. I mean, he had one question after the next. It's like you could literally see somebody come alive. You, you could just see the change in his eyes. It's like they just, they brightened up all of a sudden and he wanted to know how do we pray and how does this work and, and, and what is worship all about and, 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 and how should I read my Bible? And, and there was this excitement when it went from, yes, I believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world to I believe that Jesus died for me. Right? There's a moment where it goes from being an out there general idea or thought or belief to, wait a minute, he died for my sins, for the things that I have done wrong because he loves me personally. He loves me. And that is an incredible moment. It is an incredible privilege and it is what we live for. It is what I live for is to see people make that transition from I have a general idea about who God is and I've heard some things to I have a personal relationship with this Savior called Jesus. I know Him, and He knows me, and I get to interact, I get to pray, I get to fellowship, I get to worship, I get to experience His peace. I get to experience His love. I get to experience His goodness. And, um, and so it was so incredible being able to see this guy and these two guys on the road many years later, 
and knowing that they're still serving God and they are now reaching other people in the same way that they were reached. That they are able to see people come alive in the same way that I saw them come alive the first time they received Jesus. And so it's just an incredible, incredibly beautiful thing. And so at one point, he stopped me and he said, I've just got to tell you that you have no idea the impact that you've had on my life. He said that that Bible, he says, my whole family knows about you because I still have that Bible. And whenever I open it up, there's the note that you wrote and your name is in it. And so my, my wife is grateful for what you did in my life, even though she's never met you. And he said this to me, he said, you never know because I said to him, honestly, I then got honest with him, and I said, I, I, I can't actually remember that, but I'm really glad I did it. Um, and he said, you, you see, to you, it might just be a small thing, but to me, it changed my whole life, and it changed my whole family's life. And it's so, it was so encouraging to me, and such a great reminder that we can so often lose sight of how the small acts of obedience to God how the small acts of faithfulness, how the small acts of kindness can change people's lives and not just a person, but a family. And if they have kids, which they now have, and raise them knowing Jesus, it'll change that family. And the next family, we can literally have an impact that will ripple through generations by doing something as silly as buying somebody a Bible or writing someone a note or having one conversation one, one text message, one, one WhatsApp, one, one little bit of encouragement can change a person's life forever. And I think that God wants us to see that. God wants us to know that, that we have the ability through Him to change lives. To change lives. And so that is why from that time, before that time, and up until now, Nothing has been more satisfying to me in my life than, to, than seeing lives changed. That's, that's why we started Anchor Church. That's why we decided that we were going to do this. Not so that we can just create another religious spot for people to plug into. Not so that we can um, have something to do on Sundays. We were like, hey, we're a little bit bored Sunday mornings. It's such a weird time. So let's do something. Um, you know, we, we, we are here because we are absolutely passionate about seeing lives changed. And as a church, we hope that our passion as leaders and our passion as a team would become contagious, would be a little bit infectious, and that you would all catch the disease, this, this, this incredible passion to see lives changed. I tell you, it's addictive once you've seen one person um, go from death to life and their, their, their situation change and them finding hope and, and getting that light back in their eyes. It's incredibly powerful and satisfying to know that you are a part of something bigger than yourself. Come on, how many of you want to be a part of something bigger than yourself? We, we don't just want to live for ourselves. We want to live for Jesus and we want to reach out to others. And so I thought that in preparation for our Heart for the House, which I'll talk, talk more about towards the end, that is starting uh, or that we're going to be doing next Sunday, um, our heart for the church, our heart for the city, our vision that we believe that God has given us. We have got a very clear vision and a very clear mission that we believe that God has given us as a church, and uh, we're passionate about it. And so in preparation of that, Will and I sat down when we were in Cape Town, and I was just saying, what, what, what is it that we're, we're doing? And, and you'll, you'll find um, these little cards on your chair, but it says there, to see lives changed, right? That is what we want to do. We want to see lives changed. If we, if we uh, sum it all up at the end of the day, what do we want to see happen here at Anchor Church? And it's, we want a real impact um, in people's lives. That's what, we, that's what we're here for. And so we believe that God is going to use us to shine His light into dark places. That's what God does. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about that today. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles. Um, if you have your Bibles here, to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 16. And this just shows us how Jesus passed something onto us, how God has this heart, that same heart. The reason why we uh, are so deeply touched when we see lives changed is because it is the passion of God's own heart. It is the heart of the Creator. It is the heart of our Savior. And so when we get involved with God's plan and we see people's lives changed, it touches us in a way and fulfills us and satisfies us in a way 
that is more satisfying than anything else we can taste in this world. Anything else that we can taste in this world. We get to connect. We, it's like we're in the center of God's heart when we see lives change. And so what we see is that God doesn't only think that this is a good idea, but He's actually called us to it because of His own heart. Listen to God's heart here in 2 Corinthians 5.16. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Right? What he's saying there is that we don't just think about people and judge them according to their outward fleshly appearance, whether they're sinful, whether they're addicts, whether they've done a bunch of things wrong, uh, whether they are white or black or, or, or Indian or colored or any other race, whether they um, have an education or don't have an education, whether they have money or don't have money. We do not consider people any longer according to the flesh. It's not how we think about people. We don't think about unbelievers that way. We don't think about, about believers that way. And we don't think about ourselves that way. We don't think about ourselves according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? That's what we see when we see a life's change. That's why the lights come on behind their eyes. That's why there's somebody that goes from being reserved to, please tell me more, I can't consume enough of this, because you've actually witnessed a person come alive. Right? You've witnessed somebody engage with the Spirit of God and be regenerated in their spirits and being awakened to a whole new world. A world filled with meaning and purpose and a relationship with God. So he is a new, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The old things have passed away and everything now has become new. He goes on from there and he says, all this is from God. All of this newness is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He reconciled us to himself. The Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That, that idea of reconciliation is when you have uh, uh, friends or a relationship that's been separated, and then there is a, a rejoining, a rekindling, a restoration of that relationship. And so Jesus reconciled us to God, but listen to this, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's a ministry that he has given to us. He's given us that same mandate, that same calling. That is, in Christ, he was reconciling the world to self, not counting their trespasses against them. In other words, grace. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Why don't you just turn to the person next to you right now real quick and say, God has entrusted you. God has entrusted you. I know that's not proper English. It's fine. It's fine. It works biblically, okay? He has entrusted you with the message. Can you think about that? That God himself, the creator of heaven and earth, sent his own son to die on the cross and then took that message and said, I'm giving it to you. Each individual in this place, God has handed the message of the gospel, the message of reconciliation and put it in your hands personally. You know, it's like driving someone else's car. Have you ever driven somebody else's car? I mean, it, is, it can be nerve-wracking for some of you. The others are like doing donuts in the parking lot going, this is amazing. <laughs> this is way better than my car. <laughs> but for the most part, when somebody entrusts you with something that's precious to them, you're extra careful with it. I remember before I had kids, when my cousin uh, let me take his two kids um, out for the afternoon for lunch, it was the most nerve-wracking afternoon of my entire life. I was, after that afternoon, I was like, I'm never having kids. But it's because I was so worried that I would let something happen to a kid that's not even mine. It's such a precious uh, uh, cargo that I had with me driving in the car. Like, everybody's just going to back away. I've got my cousin's kids in the car, you know? But then sometimes we hold the gospel so loosely, so flippantly. Well, yeah, I guess God called me. But I'm actually kind of busy right now. I've got a lot going on at work, and I've got a lot of stuff that I'm thinking about. So I'll see if I'll, maybe I'll get into that a little bit later. God has entrusted the message that is literally intended to save the world into your hands. The cure for sin, the cure 
for sickness, the cure for uh, every form of brokenness is in our hands as the church. And that's what we have been entrusted with. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. God makes His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We implore you to be reconciled to God, all right? So that's the scripture that I, I just want to bring across to you this morning. Our passion, our heart is to see lives change. I'm going to just talk about a few little things that you can do um, to see lives change and that we can, are, can do and are going to do to see lives change. So let's just, let's just pray together real quick. Uh, Father, we thank you so much today, Lord, that we can hear your word, Father. Lord, that your spirit can, can carry every word of truth into our hearts today, that it can impact us, Lord God, and Lord God, that it can change the way that we look at this world, that we, that we understand our calling, that we live out our faith, God. We thank you today, God, that you will cause faith to rise up on the inside of us, Lord God, that you will cause your calling to boom louder in our ears today, Lord God, that, that we would not be able to ignore it any longer, God, but that we would be able to move beyond our comfort zones, move beyond our own personal lives, Lord, and, and begin to, to, to embrace every part of, of the great calling that you have for us as individuals and as a church. We thank you, Jesus, for your love. We thank you for your voice. We thank you that it is by your strength, by your energy, that we run this race, and we give you all of the glory today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So um, I've often seen whenever I've um, been looking to buy a home, um, you'll see that some estate agents are very proud to proclaim that they have got a sole mandate. Have any of you ever heard of a sole mandate? I'm sure you've all heard of that. When, when one estate agent um, is able to take the sole uh, responsibility of selling a certain property, the owner has said, I'm not going to entrust this mandate to anybody else, but I'm actually going to only give it to you. And so that estate agent will normally on their adverts put up a big thing that says sole mandate. If they've got a board next to the house, it'll say that this is our mandate to be able to sell this house. And what you're saying when you say that is that they're saying that we are the ones authorized on behalf of the owner to act um, for them in this matter, to sell this property. We have this mission from the owner um, to act on their behalf. And what I believe is, is that God has given us as the church a sole mandate, right? As the church. He doesn't have any plan Bs. He doesn't have any backup plans. He's only got one plan for the salvation and the restoration of the whole world, and it is His church, His people. We have a sole mandate to do what God has called us to do, to reach this world, to see lives changed. It's not going to be the self-help books. It's not going to be the psychologists. It's not going to be uh, anybody else, although there's many great things out there and a lot of like, good advice that you can take. Nothing is going to change a person's life other than the gospel. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He was a learned man. He knew every philosophy. He had practiced every form of religion or uh, his religion to its greatest extent at least. He had tried every other thing to see lives changed. And he said this one thing, he said, it's not those things. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power by which we are saved. That's where the power for transformation comes from. Not through self-help, right? But through the work of the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. And so we have got this message, this sole mandate to carry the message of reconciliation into the world and to see lives changed. And God, you know, when, when you give somebody a sole mandate, you give them authority. You say to them, I have given you authority to do this, that you are acting on my behalf. It's like the power of attorney. You act legally on my behalf. And that is what God has given us. In Luke 10 verse 19, Jesus says, behold, he sends out uh, the 70 disciples, but before he sends them, he says, behold, I have given you authority 
to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. And he goes on to say that when they go in and they pray for people, people will be healed. Um, people's lives will be changed. People will be raised up. Uh, he speaks about the protection that will be over their lives. In other words, we operate not under our own authority, but under the authority from heaven. When we are entrusted, when God entrusts this message to us, he doesn't just leave it up to our own strength or our own authority. He says, I am backing you with all the authority of heaven to do what you need to do. I'm always so inspired by, um, by, by pastors that have, that have gone forward and haven't looked to themselves but looked to Jesus and have really made an impact in this world. And I've known so many, but um, you know, Phil Smethurst, who, who is one of the guys I really look up to uh, from Overland Missions, this is exactly what they do. I had a conversation with Phil on the phone the other day, and he says they went up into the northern regions of, of Zanzibar, places where, where there hadn't been any missionaries for eight years. The last guys that were there were eight years, and they just planted a little field. They didn't really do anything. Nobody was led to the Lord, and there were all of these contentions that they were facing with, and they went in there, and they just took authority in the Spirit over what was happening there, and they just began leading people to Jesus. Because we come with the authority of heaven. And we sometimes don't step out and do the things that God has called us to do because we, we are too concerned about whether or not we have what it takes. But Jesus says, I have given you authority. We've got power over all of the opposition and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. We're a young church and I can tell you that in many moments um, in the last two years that we've existed, it has felt like we are super vulnerable. It feels like, I actually described it to somebody um, if you've ever been to New York or, or to downtown Joburg or to a place where, where a lot of people are walking around, it would be like a little flower trying to grow through the sidewalk. It's like at any point, it feels like you can just get trampled and taken out. And there have been so many moments when, we, when we've had that. We had one Sunday where we got a phone call on the Thursday to tell us we had no longer have a venue. And so we had to make a plan and we told everybody we were having a family day in the park because it was a last minute idea. We didn't, we didn't tell them until they got to the park that we actually don't have a venue. But we just felt, I remember just feeling like, what is going to happen to everything that we've worked on over this past year? Are we going to lose it all now in a moment because we lost our venue? The next Sunday we were in here. The next Sunday we were in here, God just made a way for us. We realized that even though we feel vulnerable, we're not operating under our own authority. We operate under the authority of heaven. And what Gamaliel said to those that wanted to crush the church in the early days, he said, leave them alone. Because if they are from God, if they are truly of God, and we fight against them, we'll find ourselves fighting against God. He says, but if they're not from God, they'll disappear. They won't last. And so what I'm saying is, is that as a community that is from God, there is nothing that can crush us. There is nothing that can move us beyond God's protection. We stand in his protection. We do what he's called us to do. In Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus says, he's, first of all, he starts off with Acts by saying, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But then he stops and he says, but first wait before you go. Wait before you go. And he says in verse 8, this is the reason. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, but first wait in Jerusalem until you have received power from the Holy Spirit. He says, and then you will be, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So I am sending you out, but I am not sending you out in your own strength. I'm sending you out with the power of the Holy Spirit. So God has called us to see lives changed and people reconciled to him. And, uh, and we want people to know that. As a church, that is why we exist. We want to be a part of seeing those lives transformed. It's, it's the greatest thing that we get to be able to think about what has value in this life. What really has value? What can you do and what can you own that will really have eternal value? What can you own that will, that will matter in the life hereafter? My mom always used to tell me this, that the only thing that has eternal value is people. It's what we do for Jesus and the people that we get to take with us. 
because there's nothing else. You'll leave your car behind. You'll leave your nice house behind. You'll leave your whole wardrobe behind, and, 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 and all of that stuff will be distributed amongst your family members. It's going to stay behind. What you get to take along are people. It's the greatest wealth in this world. It's what God cares about the most. And God loves people more than what we can understand. He loves people. I remember the story of Philip Mantofa, who runs um, a great church, thousands of people uh, in Indonesia. And um, he talks about a witch doctor, a very, very powerful witch doctor operating in those areas amongst those islands of Indonesia that every year would do a mock uh, kind of death and resurrection to kind of, under demonic power, to kind of uh, uh, mock Jesus. And, and what he would do is thousands would gather, and this witch doctor um, would take uh, a knife and cut his own uh, stomach open and then pull out his own intestines um, and then literally bite into it himself and then die. And three days later would come back from the dead and turned and converted many people into the slavery of this kind of demonic power by which he did these things. And uh, there was a church, Philip Mantofa's church, and a group of Christians in that area that just prayed for this witch doctor. Not that God would destroy him, not that God would take his life away, not that God would, would wreck his life, but that God would save his life. Isn't that incredible? That the guy misleading everybody, that you can pray for him, that, God, that he would also see God's grace. And so um, at one point, he came to uh, Philip Mantofa's church and he said, I'm here to give my life to Jesus. You've got to tell me how, how do I do this because I had a dream. Jesus visited me in the night. And so Philip Mantofa asked him what happened in this dream. And he said all that happened is that he saw Jesus in this dream standing by the foot of his bed. And Jesus pointed at him and said, I am Jesus and I love you. That was it. That was the whole dream. And this man, who had been a witch doctor under this demonic influence for years and years and years and years, goes to the nearest church to give his life to Jesus, and the way that Jesus presents himself to a person who is outright against the gospel is not with threat, is not with condemnation, is not with, with, with judgment, but I am Jesus and I love you. Come on, is that not the moment that all of us give our lives to Jesus? When we recognize that he is true and he loves us. It's the goodness of God that leads man to repent. I am Jesus. That's how he presents himself. And I love you. And so our mission is to share that message with people. To let them know. Now we want people's lives to change. And we would hope that if you're here at Anchor um, and you're involved with behavior and, and sinful things that aren't right, that they will change. We want to see all of us as a church live a life that looks different, a holy life. But where a lot of pastors and churches get this wrong is that people don't have the power to change because you told them to change. That's not what's going to make them change. It's when they realize that they are loved and forgiven and graced by God that they begin to rely on that relationship with God, which produces change. Right? So the first thing that we present, like Jesus does, I am Jesus and I love you. I love you. That's why our mission is to see lives change by introducing people to the love and the grace of God, getting them connected to community and helping them engage with God's purpose for their lives. That's, that's really what we're about as a church. So in the little bit of time that we have left today, I wanna just give you, um, I think, four quick points on how we can see lives change. How can you see a life change in your own life? How can you see lives change? Because we always think, okay, yeah, it's up to the church. I go to Anchor Church, I go on a Sunday, and so, yeah, so I'm gonna see lives change. But how can we actually all engage with God's purpose for our lives and see other lives impacted through that? I'm gonna share just a few things with you, and so I hope you're ready to take these points down. But point number one is make God's mission your mission. Make God's mission your mission. By the way, you will forget every Sunday everything that I say unless you're making some sort of a note of this. Um, let, even, even if you don't, never look at those notes again, writing them down helps you remember, all right? So, um, so I want to encourage you to bring notebooks and, and to make notes of this stuff. Go through it in your, in your own time again. But make God's mission your mission. Listen to what Jesus said in 1 John 4 verse 9. 
Sorry, I'm going, to, I'm going to read 1 John 4 verse 9 first and then show you what Jesus said to his disciples. But in 1 John 4 verse 9 it says, In this the love of God was made manifest amongst us. How did God make that love manifest? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God had a mission. And that mission was that we would be able to live through him. That's the mission of Jesus. That's why he sent his son. And when Jesus was here on earth, that's why he was known and often um, ridiculed for being a friend of sinners, for being a friend of sinners, because he didn't go and hang out with the religious elite. He didn't go and hang out with the people that, that, that look like they've got it all together. Jesus went and hung out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the thieves and the thugs, and he sat with them and he ate with them and he gave his time to them. And I'm so grateful that Jesus is a friend of sinners because that's why Jesus is my friend. That's why I get to hang out with Jesus. He's a friend of sinners because that was his mission. When they ridiculed him, when the religious people ridiculed him, he said, who is it that needs the doctor? Is it the healthy people or is it the sick? I'm here because I've got a mission. Then he says this in John 20 verse 21, Jesus said to them again, to his disciples, peace be with you as the Father has sent me to seek and save the lost, even so I am sending you. As the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sent us. So we, if we are going to engage with God's plan for our lives and, to, and see lives change, must make God's mission our mission. His mission must be our mission. The Great Commission is our mission to see people saved, to see lives changed. And we've got to take ownership of that. I want to ask you the question this morning. Have you taken ownership of God's mission, the mission that he forwarded to you through the person of Jesus? Have you taken personal responsibility for the people that God has called you to reach? Or are we just kind of one-tracking it through life, just focused on our own stuff, too busy to care? If we are going to see lives changed as a church and as individuals, we must make God's mission our mission. We must allow our hearts to become broken for the things that breaks God's heart. We've got to see people, really see them, not just pass by them, but see the people around us the way that God does. So that's point number one, make God's mission your mission. The point number two is start where you are. Start where you are. I can't stress this point enough. So many people are like, well, one day when I have a degree in theology and I've done, you know, a thousand church services and I've, I've studied the Bible uh, from cover to cover several times and, and I have enough knowledge and enough wisdom and enough skill and all those things, then I will start doing what God has called me to do. But I'm telling you that God uses us from day one. If you can share what God has done in your life, you can change lives. If you can just share with somebody what, what has happened in your life, if you can just take whatever it is that you have and employ that in the service of others, then you will see lives changed. So start where you are. When I was 16 years old, I felt this, this um, I don't know what it was, but this calling or this weightiness of what I felt, this burden to, to do what God had called me to do, increase on my life. And so what I did was at the age of 16, I wrote a course called Understanding Salvation. I don't even know if I understood the title, but, but I wrote the course. And the course was two days, three hours each day. The first day was why you need Jesus, and the second day was why you need the Holy Spirit. And so the first day, I literally started, I don't know what I was doing, I just wrote a course. I was 16 years old, and I went up in assembly at school, and I invited all of my, my, my classmates at school. I said, I'm teaching this course, and great planning. The first time I, I led it was the first two days of the December holiday. The, the, we broke up on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I was at school. Who wants to go back to school? But for some reason, 40 kids came on both of those days. The first day was about 35. The next day was a little bit more, just over that. And, and we, I, I remember going on the board and I was like, um, we can just leave that photo. You can put, go back to the previous slide for now um, to start where you are. But I remember going back onto the board and just being like, okay, how do I explain to people why they need Jesus? And I was like, okay, God created the world. And so I draw a world, and, and we're here in South Africa. That, that's literally how my course started. 
And I described how God created man, and then there was a fall, and then, and then there was brokenness and separation and the gap between us and God, and we all tried to jump across, but we all landed in the pit and, and all this kind of stuff. And I was just, I, di- I didn't know much, but I started where I was at. And I was at school. So I thought, let me do this at school. Let me go up in assembly and let me, let me start sharing that. I love how Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll start in Jerusalem. Where were they? In Jerusalem. So don't wait until you get to the next place before you start making a difference. Where are you today, right now? What does your world look like? What does your complex look like? What does your, what does your career look like? What, what, where do you go to every day? What is your friendship circle? What is your family environment? Start there. Don't wait until you get into a different position. Start in Jerusalem and God will lead you to the next places. Start being a missionary to your own home, to your own family, to your own kids. Lead your kids to the Lord, your friends, your neighbors. Just share the message. You can put up that photo now of of, uh, John Wesley. This is John Wesley who accidentally started the Methodist church, didn't actually want to. Um, He just wanted to tell people about Jesus. And so he didn't have have anybody to preach to. He was just an Anglican guy and um, kind of served in the Anglican church, um, had a passion for music and songs and, and, uh, and for the gospel. And so you know what he did is he said, you know what, I have a horse and so he got onto a horse, and he rode this horse, because um, that's what you do once you get on it, and, um, and they estimate that John Wesley rode over 250,000 miles on horseback. That's a distance equal to 10 circuits of the globe along the equator. He went 10 times around the earth at its widest point, And all he did is whenever he saw people, he'd get off the horse and preach the gospel. Just preach the message. They say they estimate he preached about 40,000 messages in his lifetime. Hey, I don't have anybody here to preach to. I mean, John Wesley could have said, hey, I don't have anyone who's going to listen, so I'll just go back to doing what I was doing. He just got on a horse and rode through the countryside and preached to whoever would hear. This is what he did, and, and he became the founder of the Methodist movement, and one of, saw one of the greatest revivals in history happen through his life. Before long, tens of thousands of people, I've actually got another photo of that, his outdoor uh, meetings just grew because he went from preaching on a horse to standing in one place, and he would have tens of thousands of people come to hear him preach. And he just rode from city to city just doing that. That's the story of John Wesley, just started where he was and did that. We were at that Hillsong Conference with Brian Houston, and he shared a little bit of his story this past weekend where he said that um, when he started out, he, in order to be able to preach and travel around and preach with his little family, his young family that he had, he had two young kids, um, he went into little country uh, churches that, that had 60 or 70 people and just preached wherever he could find a place to do that. And in order to fund his ministry so that he could travel to preach, um, he would wash windows. And he got $1 for small windows, $2 for the bigger ones, and there was one particular window in his hometown where he could get $5 every time he washed it. That's how he funded his ministry. Today, we know the story of Hillsong, and we know how they've grown, uh, how Brian Houston um, leads a church now that, that has over an average of over 100,000 people in church every single Sunday in his church organization. And they, their church has written songs that are sung by 50 million people in 60 different languages. This is the guy who had a bad mustache somewhere, you know, and a mullet somewhere in Sydney washing windows. And today that's his story. Why? He didn't say, I've got to go, well, if I can't get there, I can't do anything. If I don't have a packed out auditorium, I can't do anything. He said, what can I do now? Well, there's a little church down the road. I need some fuel. I can wash this window and I can get there and I can preach. Start where you are. If you want to see life change, start where you are. The third point is use what you have. Start where you are and use what you have. 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each one has received some spiritual gift. It says each one. There's not a single person excluded from this. Every single one of you has received some spiritual gift. Use it. He should use it to serve others. Like good stewards, good managers. So be good servants and use your gifts to serve each other. What do you have? 
What do you have? It doesn't have to be much. What do you have that can make a difference? What skill, what, what, what ability, what amount of time, uh, what amount of money, what is it that God has given you that you have that can make a difference? Use what God has given you. That's what He implores us to do. When I wrote that first course when I was in grade 10 or, or standard 8, I, did, I didn't know a lot, but I knew who Jesus was. I knew who Jesus was, and I could at least tell people about that. And I'll never forget how um, on that first day when I, when I, when I went and, and taught that course, how I took a little bit of a break and we stood outside and I had spoken about everything and I felt like, wow, where is this going to? Like, I hope it's making an impact. Uh, you know, people were sitting and listening and I taught them about Jesus and the, these kids were there and a lot of them, I just invited, they hadn't really heard about Jesus ever before. And all of a sudden, I, I just felt this thing, just go in and talk about the love of God. And I remember actually going up and saying, okay, guys, we've learned a lot today, but I just wanna to talk to you about how God feels about you. And I just started talking to this class about the love of God and what he did for us through Jesus. And I'll never forget that there was a girl um, in, that, in that class, her name was Monica, and she actually put, her, she actually put her, her hand in front of her face like this as I was talking, and she was looking down at the desk. And I'll never forget seeing tears fall onto that wooden desk in that classroom that day. I was 16 years old, and she didn't know Jesus, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I just told him about the love of God, and her life was changed forever because of that. Just use what you have even if it's not much, because God takes what we have and He multiplies it in people's lives. It's so important. Another uh, man that I wanted to mention to you was a man called D.L. Moody, and his incredible story, uh, D.L. Moody, um, about his life. He was born in 1837, and his dad died at the age of four, but he had seven brothers, and so his mom was a single mother. Um, they had lost everything that they had, she lost all of her money. They were in, in dire poverty um, after their dad died. And um, many people would often tell her that her sons are going to end up in jail, that she cannot possibly raise seven kids with no money by herself, and her, her kids would end up in jail. And um, she just stayed faithful to God, and, and, and she just raised them to the best of her ability. And at her funeral, D.L. Moody said, if everyone had a mother like my, my mother, there would be no need for jails. And um, they grew up very poor. So at age of 17, he still didn't know how to read and write. 17 years old, couldn't read or write. Now, if I was 17 years old and I couldn't even read or write, how, how could I ever think that I could make a difference in this world, right? I would feel so limited by that, and I'm sure you would too. And so he started working in a shoe store to make some extra money and one day there was a lady from a local Sunday school that saw him working in there, went in there, and shared the gospel with him. And he gave his life to Jesus. He went in there and he gave his life to Jesus. And he, he writes about this later on in his sermons. He spoke about this and he says this. He says, before my conversion, I worked to be saved. But now I work because I am saved. I remember the first morning after I trusted Christ, I think the sun shone a great deal brighter than it did before. And as I walked in the Boston Common and heard the birds singing in the trees, I thought that they were all singing a song to me. Again, coming alive, seeing lives changed. One lady, one act of obedience. There's a boy in a shoe store. Let me walk in and go and share the message of, of, of God's grace with him. And his life has changed forever. And so two years later in 1858, D.L. Moody found a vacant bar in the city of, of Chicago, I believe it was, and started a Sunday school. Just a Sunday school in a vacant bar. <laughs> he didn't have much. He just used what he had. He got some local people who were willing to use their horse-drawn carts to bring kids to the Sunday school, and he just wanted to reach children with this message. He was, he was only 17 himself. And so this just started to grow and to grow and to grow. And, and eventually they said that thousands of kids showed up every week to hear the message of the gospel through D.L. Moody. And so he decided that this was all he, he wanted to do. He became so passionate about it. And so he became a pastor and he got invited to preach at other churches about what had happened with these kids. And soon he got invited to just preach in those churches and whatever. But he was still very rough around the edges. He, he hardly knew how to read and write at that point. At the age of 23, he was preaching in a church, and a, a person uh, came over to him afterwards, 
and said to him, uh, this critic came up to him in, in Chicago and said to him that he would not reach any people, he would not genuinely be able to reach people if, he, if his grammar didn't improve because he had made so many grammatical errors during, um, during his, his, his message. So this is what D.L. Moody replied. The man said to him, you make too many mistakes in grammar, he told Moody. So Moody responded, I know I make mistakes, but I'm doing the best I can with what I've got. I know I make a lot of mistakes grammatically here in my presentation, but I'm doing the best I can with what I've got. Then he looked his critic straight in the eye and said, look here, friend, you've got grammar enough. What are you doing with it for the master? If you know how bad my grammar is, what are you doing with all the good grammar that you have? So it's easy to criticize those that are using what they've got to serve God, but what are we doing with what we have? Truly. People are very critical of churches. We've learned that. Come in here, oh, that should be better, this should be better, the you know, sermon should be more like that, or the music should be more like that. And, and we're always improving. We are passionate about church, so we are always improving. But my question is, with all of that great knowledge that you have, what are you doing with it to make a difference, to see lives change? So use what you have got, not to be a critic, but to be a player in the game, to be somebody who contributes D.L. Moody ended up leading one of the greatest revivals. He traveled to Britain and led one of the greatest revivals Britain had ever seen with over 40,000 people attending his open-air services at one time. They say that they estimate close to a million souls were saved through his life. The guy with bad grammar who didn't have a dad and didn't know how to read and write at the age of 17. So that was my, my, my third point, is to, is to just use what you have. Finally, is give what you can. Give what you can. This is such an important point, because we can so often go, yes, I'll do this and I'll do that and whatever, but where our hearts are actually held, where our hearts are often gripped and, and, and restrained, and where we feel it's difficult for us to let go, is in what we actually give financially. And the scriptures actually speak about this again and again and again. And, and Paul commends those who can give even though they don't have a lot. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1 to 5, and I just want to read you this from the message paraphrase. But listen to what Paul says. He says, now friends, I want to report on the surprising and generous ways in which God is working in the churches in Macedonia province. This was an area where the people were generally poor. Fierce troubles came down on the people of those churches, pushing them to the very limit the trial exposed their true colors. They were incredibly happy, though desperately poor. The pressure triggered something totally unexpected, an outpouring of pure and generous gifts. I was there and saw it for myself. They gave offerings of whatever they could, far more than they could afford, pleading for the privilege of helping out in the relief of poor Christians." pleading for the privilege to be able to give. This was totally sponta spontaneous, entirely their own idea, and caught us completely off guard. What explains, what explains it was that they had first given themselves unreservedly to God and to us. The other giving simply flowed out of the purposes of God working in their lives. I love it. What explains people who are personally poor saying that we are pleading for the privilege to give our money away. How do you come up with an explanation for why people would do that? And he says, this is the explanation. They had, first of all, given themselves to God and to others. They made God's mission their mission, in other words. And from that point on, generosity just flowed. Generosity just flowed. I love the fact that Jesus watched people give. He watched how people gave when he sat at the temple. And he said, there are people that have abundance. And they have, you know, if you've got a million, a million dollars in the bank or a million rand in the bank and you come and you give, you know, 10,000 rand, people go, wow, he gave so much, but it's just 10,000 rand out of a million. But he says, a, a woman came and she just gave a few coins, but it was all that she had. And you know, if I was Jesus and I knew that woman and I, you know, 
in my own human thinking, I'd be like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. A lot of other people have money. You don't have money. Wait, wait, wait. Let me open this box and give you your coins back, right? I would imagine Jesus being like, oh, my word, that's all she has. No, no, somebody stop her. Somebody go get that money and give it back to her. Give her some extra as well. But Jesus watches a poor woman that only had a few coins left, put it all into the offering box, and even though he loves her desperately, doesn't stop her. Why? Because he knows that God will not be a debtor to anyone and will look after her. Jesus goes, she could give it all. You could right now give it all, and God will just look after you. And it's because Jesus knew that that he says, look at this faith. It's faith to be able to do that. And so God encourages us to contribute, and Jesus speaks about this a lot, to seeing lives changed. When we give financially, we can see lives changed. When we give together, we can fulfill our vision to reach a city. And so we have a church, as a church, this is what we've done. As a church, number one, we have made God's mission our mission. We exist here for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to share the hope of Jesus with our city, right? We have made his mission our mission. Number two, we've started where we are. We didn't actually know where we were going to be. And so when we started, we said there's a restaurant in Design Quarter, and they're willing to let us have meetings there, so let's just go there and meet with our team, and then we'll look for a venue. And we had looked at 47 venues before starting our services and just ran out of time. There was no more time. We were going to so many venues and there was nowhere opening up. So we said, hey, we're already here in Premi. Why don't we just start where we are? And we just started where we are. Today we're here at Langham's, but we've got a vision to have our own building and our own place and to plant campuses and to, and to plant churches and to do great things. But we're just gonna start today where we are. That's what we've done already. We're using what we have. Every single cent that comes into this church, every uh, bit of energy that we have, every bit of skill and knowledge that is represented amongst our church, we are using it to do something bigger than ourselves. And we invite you to be a part of that. To you, what do you have? What skills? What talents? What ability? What resources? And then we give what we can. This is something that we've always said from the beginning is that we give what we can. We give where we can. And oftentimes we hear about people in church that are struggling or we hear about situations and, I, and I'll go to William, I did it again, I think it was yesterday and I said, hey, there's this situation in church, can the church help out in this area? Can we help these people? Can we do something for them? And we don't have the amount of resources that a lot of other churches have, but what we have, we will use to see lives change. That's one thing we can guarantee you and we'll always put it, uh, that, that is our, our value, it's our heart, is that we will always give what we can to see lives changed. So we're pioneering together. We're doing something incredible, and we're doing it for that purpose and that reason.